Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. Today we're going to be sharing the fourth message in this series that we're calling Undeceptions, Peering into Truth. And there's some interesting background in this series I just wanted to share with you. When the pulpit team got together to plan, to pray, and to talk about what we think God is bringing to us in this new season of us coming together, um, there's a unanimous sense that the Spirit is saying there is a season where it's critically important for us to guard against being deceived. The alternative title that we were actually working on for a period of time there was uh, Being Wise to the Lies. Well, the implication of that, of course, is that we are being deceived when we believe lies that somebody is clearly trying to tell us. So I want to point out, however, we're about halfway through this series, not all deception is directly out of the mouth of the devil. Do you guys know that? There are other deceptions that don't just come from the devil's mouth himself. So we can't blame the devil all of the time. Some of the times, our own souls set us up to be deceived. That is, our stubbornness, our desires, and our pride. So the nature of deception is this. Usually, we don't like being deceived. Uh, We've heard the pledge, then I'll get on my knees and pray, and we won't get fooled again. Thank you to the who for reminding us to pray against deception. Amen. That's what they're doing. They're praying against deception. That's right. So why then do we get deceived? Well, because by its nature, we don't know when we're getting deceived. That's why it's called deception. That might be so painfully obvious to some of you, but listen, that's how people become deceived. They don't see it coming. So deception's been around for a long time, and deception, especially in marketing, is what we should have expected in the developing world of commerce. And sure enough, plenty of that. So let me present Exhibit A, Clark Stanley's snake oil liniment. Clark Stanley's snake oil liniment really made a big showing just after the turn of the century in 1907. It was famously marketed by traveling salesmen. They would go from town to town smelling this smelly fluid to be applied to body joints and parts to relieve pain. Of course, it was very expensive. And of course, there was no recourse in the inevitable case that you wished to make good on the money back guarantee because by then they would have left town. Well, the U.S. government was not impressed by these sales tactics. And they regulated this like they do everything else by passing the Food and Drug Act of 1906, which was eventually evolved into the FDA. And in 1916, Clark Stanley's snake oil liniment was examined by the Bureau of Chemistry. Wow. They found it was drastically overpriced and of very limited value. So as a result, they said the material was effectively mineral oil, and it was being sold as snake oil. And so they called that deception 
in advertising. He was actually fined $20, which today is about 450 bucks. And the term snake oil has since entered our new our American lexicon as a reference to anything that's phony. Any concoction sold as medicine that's phony. And by extension, a snake oil salesman is commonly used to describe a quack, a huckster, or a charlatan. Someone who deceives with the purpose of separating a pain-ridden fool from his money. So that's very interesting. I've been... Uh, deceived by some deception in advertising myself. In the 1980s, uh, my brother and his family and our family would join together for a summer vacation each year. And uh, before the internet was widely used, you couldn't check out on things like this. So we depended on the classified sections in newspaper ads from vacation rentals near the beach where we wanted to be. So we identified one particular place in Rehoboth and it was listed as family-friendly, a short walk to the beach, lovely second-floor apartment, three bedrooms with a breezy porch overlooking a grassy yard with a picnic table. That sounds really nice. Deception in advertising. So we discovered when we got there, it didn't lie, but in every other way, we were deceived. That family-friendly meant it would be family-friendly if you had no kids. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. Breezy porch meant the screens were full of holes. The grassy yard looked like three-foot-high wheat field. The picnic table was in the final stages of decomposition. And our walk to the beach would be short if you were an Olympic speedwalker. Okay? So none of those things came out to be true. And then we desperately said, we got to get out of this place. However, on that short time of notice, we were unable to do so. So we had to lick our sores and lump it for the week because we were deceived. So in this series, we're going to discuss the nature of the God. First, we discuss the nature of the God who delights to undeceive us and about how Satan is the primary source of evil who wants us to be deceived and how God uses undeceptions as turning points in our lives. But as far back as the biblical history records go, there has been a direct source of deception that has been released unabated against God's people. So today, we're talking about the deception of the world. Or in other words, I want you guys to become undeceived from the world. Now, if you might recall, our definition for undeception was this one. It's the point of being freed from a misconception. And undeception will free us from deception, illusion, error, an ungodly belief, or an all-out lie. That's what undeceptions free us from. So we're going to try to undeceive ourselves by peering into truth and let the truth set us free today. The text that we're looking at is going to be from uh, 1 John. And some of you guys know the style and the writings of 1 John. Actually, John is very much like that in his gospel as well, similar style. He has lots of comparisons. So in the section just before the one we're going to read, he was talking about darkness and light, then addressing spiritual children, children, young men, fathers, talking about how we mature in Christ and learn to overcome the devil, the evil one. The importance of knowing the Father and of being strong 
And now he gets us into verse 15, into how not to be drawn in by the world. So starting at verse 15, I'll be reading from the New American Standard. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. As a freebie, I'll throw in verse 17. The world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. In John's very dramatic way of writing, he uses repetition for emphasis. In this very brief segments of two or three verses, he mentions the word the world six times. Six times he mentions it. So I'm going to give us our working definition of world which I've gathered from various sources. And the definition I'm going to use of the world is this. It's the humanistic system that is at odds with God. But I'm not going to leave it right there. I'm going to expand it further to say it is also the evil system controlled by Satan that leads us away from our worship of God. Okay, and the reasons I mentioned that we'll get to in a little bit. So in addition to this term, the world was repeated in there so often. He also uses a repeated use of the word, New American Standard calls the word lusts. So the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eye, and the world and its lusts. Some of your translations will have other words it uses in there. The New Testament uh, might, uh, some of your New Testament translations may have the word evil cravings, desires, instead of using just the word lust. The word is epithumia in the Greek, and every other time, in the, almost every other time in the New Testament where epithumia is used by writers of the New Testament, it's talking about evil desires, okay, not good. Now, that's not to say all desire is bad. C.S. Lewis spent a lot writing about and talking about sometimes our desires aren't even strong enough. But the problem, of course, is the object of our desires. But in this case, John is warning us about evil desires. And of course, when John's talking about these evil desires as being in the world, he doesn't just mean these lusts are just floating around the world, but it's based in the people who are in the world. These lusts are in people who make up the world. So in John's description, all that is in the world, he's describing human cravings, the lust for flesh, the lower nature, the lust of the eye, human pride. John means these people who are part of the system. So that's why we define it as a human system. It is based on people. But when John says, do not love the world, we should be careful not to view the people of this world as people that we shouldn't love. I want to be very careful about that. Noting that the same use for the world, you, the word for the world is cosmos, is the same word that appears in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. So wait a minute, what does this mean? John's saying don't love the world, and yet God loves the world. 
But John is also including, he says, nor the things of the world. So I want to make that dichotomy there that we can't say we shouldn't love the people of the world because God does. But it's the things of the world that we need to be careful of. And also, I chose this as a section of talking about how the world deceives us. John never uses the words, do not be deceived. You know, those words, do not be deceived, are used over a dozen times in the New Testament. In the Gospels, Paul's writings, Peter writes that. But for sure, John is emphasizing something that is tantamount, and I will demonstrate to you, is a form of deception. So I would say to you, do not be deceived. So, and John does not say this. He says, do not be deceived. Avoid the sin of the world. John doesn't say that. He talks a lot about, instead, the love of the Father and the love for the world. What is key in this to John is our love. That is key to him much more than any sins. So there's various interpretations that have been given to this segment. If you go to Bible commentaries, some of them will say, oh yes, these three temptations that the world provides for us, they are in fact the same temptations that the serpent offered Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden. And I would say it looks like, and it sounds a little bit like that. I'm not necessarily persuaded. There are others who said, no, these are the temptations that Jesus faced when the devil tested him in the wilderness. That might be the case. But one way or another, I just want to simplify this whole segment by saying that the world offers us temptations that are custom-made for our moral weaknesses. You see what I mean? The lust of our lower nature, the lust for things that catch our eye, that ostentatious pride that makes us look better than other people and gives us a false sense of worth. These are moral weaknesses we all share. But also, I have to admit, from my definition of the world, that I said, there is a connection to Satan. And that is because this world, the scripture said, Satan is the god of it. God, as it said, one passage says, Satan is the god of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4, it says, the unbeliever uh, who follows Satan's agenda, who is the god of this world, He's blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the gospel of the glory of Christ. It is one scheme of Satan to, prevent, to promote false philosophies, philosophies that will blind the unbeliever to the truth of the gospel. These schemes are designed to keep people imprisoned and prevent them from being set free by Christ. So he targets our hearts in the love that we have for Jesus. And he wants to replace the love that we have for Jesus in our hearts with the love for the world. That is the scheme of the devil through the world. Paul uses, um, John uses some other hyperbolic language here as well. For, for extreme purposes of his lesson that he's trying to make, but also he does it to make clear how serious this issue is. If anyone loves the world, John wrote, the love of the Father is not in them. The verb love is actually in the continuation tense. It's called the aorist tense. That means somebody 
who loves the world as a habit of life. They love the world and keep on loving the world. They have a habit of life to the exclusion of any love for God. Those are the extremes that John's talking about. But these are serious words. I think they're serious words for all of us today. And in James 4, James writes this. He's a little more polite with his language. Not. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, everyone who wishes to be friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James didn't hold much back. And he proposes that a love or a friendship from the, with, the, with the world is actually a form of adultery against God. That's what James says. Listen carefully. The world, that is, their system of beliefs, their values, their philosophies, and the people who live according to those beliefs and values and philosophies. That's who he's referring to. We now, all of us, as followers of Jesus, we were saved out of that world of those beliefs and values and philosophies. And yet Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5, I wrote in my letter not to associate with immoral people. At sea, he wants us to be separatists. That's what it is, right? No, Paul says this, I did not mean at all with the immoral people of this world, but with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. That's not who Paul was writing about. In other words, this, you got to be in the world, but not of the world. And that, I just said a mouthful there, because that is subtlety that you said, well, I recognize the two. They're not so easy to distinguish. And that's the warning in this message. That's the warning that John is leveling to us. The world knows how to appeal to our desires our lower nature. The world knows how to market its wares to specifically meet our need to boost our pride, to cause us to fall in love with the world all over again. And John knows these are a potential way to sideline the followers of Christ. That's why I put this in the letter. That's why John's making such a fuss about it. And this is a deception we have to be aware of. And it's a deception because you don't see it coming. That you may have begun to love the world's ways a little more and love Jesus a little less. Subtle. It's very quiet in this room right now. And that is very subtle. That's the whole premise of all this. How many of you have heard the concept of drift? Oh, how sad is it is the one who drifts from God and does not realize how far they've actually drifted. And sometimes it comes to disaster before they realize that. When my brother and I first got saved, we got saved in the 1970s. We were uh, reckless drug users, pyromaniacs, and a number of other things. And, uh, but we were immediately put under very strong discipleship. Some of you may have known about or heard about the discipleship of the 70s. It was overbearing, and it, it really, they constantly told us how to live our lives. They were not polite or subtle about anything they did. But the truth is, it did the job in our lives. We knew we were no longer to be part of the world. We were told, cut off your relationship with the world. So I had to quit my rock and roll band. 
and I cut my hair. And I did all these things. And suddenly I was no longer friends with the world. And the world let me know real quickly that I wasn't their friend anymore. So we were quickly undeceived in that particular regard. But many others um, have not had that kind of discipleship. Many people come to Christ with this thought that, you know what, I could still be part of the world and still love Jesus, right? Can I do that? Is that possible to do that? Because I've really been very successful in the world, and I've, I've made a great way for myself. So I'd like to share with you an important undeception today. This is an undeception you need to know. What you love could actually destroy you. And loving the world will destroy you. Let me say that again. Loving the world will destroy you. No ifs, ands, or buts about that. I want to make that perfectly clear today. So if you know nothing else that I've said today, I pray that these words will sink deep into your heart and you'll know what I'm talking about. So how do you know if you're becoming friends of the world? How do you measure the state of your heart? How do you know when your love for Jesus is growing cold? Because, oh, by the way, your heart can only take one love. So it's going to be love for Jesus or love for the world, and they keep pressing one another out of our hearts. And what happens if we don't know what's going on? Well, we have to ask the Holy Spirit to constantly, constantly be checking our hearts at all times. The Bible gives an example of a fellow. His name is Damas or Demos. I'm not sure about the pronunciation of it, but let me just share some things about this fellow. It says this, Paul wrote um, from verse uh, 23 in this one section, Paul wrote this, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demos, Luke, and my fellow workers. Okay? In other words, he was somebody who was alongside Paul in everything that was, he was doing there. And then in Colossians, he writes this. Uh, he talks about Luke, my beloved physician, and he sends you his greetings. And also Demos. Okay, so this guy Demos has been with Paul's followers, doing things for Paul, hanging out with Paul, and Paul had kind things to say about them. But then in 2 Timothy, he warns Timothy and says, Ah, for Demos, having loved this present world, has deserted me. And the Greek doesn't come really clear, but really it's almost, some of your translations might say, he left me in the lurch. He deserted me when I needed him the most. And he's gone to Thessalonica. Well, we don't really know exactly whether he had friends or relatives in Thessalonica. Is that why he had to go? What happened there? And there's nothing else presented in here. I don't know the theology of what happened to this guy, Demos. But I do know this. There was a progression going on in his life. For at one point, he was of use to Paul, and he was part of Paul's followers. But then having loved this world, he exited the scene, and he left Paul. So it's just a warning, okay? Was he deceived by the world? I'm not sure, but I'm just asking the question. Was he? Perhaps he was. How many of you have seen the movie? I hope you've all seen it. Chariots of Fire? Okay, Chariots of Fire, great movie. Did you know that the, 
the writers of the movie and the directors were not Christians. Did you know that? Phenomenal thing to think about, right? Because it's such an evangelistic movie. But at one scene in the movie, Eric was getting very involved in running, and he was going to run in the Olympics. His sister Jenny in the movie, by the way, it didn't happen that way. This is what the screenwriters do to make a tense moment, right? Jenny was actually much younger and still in China. But they put her in the movie saying to him, Eric, Eric, I'm frightened for you. I'm frightened for what it might all do to you. And he says, Jenny, Jenny. And they go out for a walk. They have a private conversation. He says this, I believe God made me for a purpose in China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. See, Eric Little justifies his working out in the world by saying, when I run this way, I know God is pleased. I feel his pleasure when I do that. And some of you guys know that another movie was put out, which none of us ever go to see, which is what happened to Eric Little after he went back to China. What a success, successful missionary he was and how in the end, a very sad ending for him because he was so destitute in his health that he ended up having, a, I think, effectively died of a brain tumor because he gave himself so completely to the people of China. But likewise, we have to ask this question ourselves as a test. Do my interactions with the world cause me to love Jesus more or to withdraw from service like Demos. Keith Green wrote these words into one of his songs. The world has kept its promise to daily let me down. And that way you keep the world always at a healthy distance in your hearts because the world is going to let you down. Keep that in your mind, okay? It makes you prevents you from falling in love with the world all over again. But there is a dangerous deception above all deceptions, and that is this one. If you could say this, I won't be deceived by the world. Be careful, I'm warning you, because then you're a subject of deception. You can be, and you should say this, so I know my heart. I know I can be deceived by this world. I know how it can draw me in to its ways. So we have to check our motivations. In the end of all these things, we have to ask, have good things in my life become more important than God? Ooh, now I'm getting on some home turf here. Have some good things that I've been involved with become more important than God himself? Oh, perhaps, maybe not, Obvious that it's involving your lust of your flesh or, the, or your, the lust of your eye or boastful pride. But I'm telling you that we need to seriously check our motivations. Do not be deceived. Even in good things, even in ministry, I've seen people become deceived about this and be drawn because of their boastful pride or the lust of their flesh. So here's a good test. God has a good way of doing this. When God suddenly yanks away from us our involvement in some particular ministry or in some particular spiritual gift or some kind of activity, our reaction to that when we're yanked away is a tremendous revealer. 
it says everything to us about where our heart's been at. But God does that sometimes. When church leaders take, have ministries that somehow get removed from them. I have an example of, remember year ago, year, years ago, we had some self-appointed greeters in our church. Self-appointed greeters. That meant they appointed themselves as greeters. And at Christmas time, we said, well, let's get some other people involved in greeting. So I just made a polite phone call. Listen, we don't want to bless you guys this Christmas holiday. And you know what? You don't have to greet if you don't want to, okay? We're going to have some other people up here greeting for Christmas. Take a break. Enjoy the Christmas holiday. Whoa! You would have thought I was taking away their 401k. <laughs> and they, they got on the phone with me and says, I can't believe you're taking this away from us. We've been doing this so faithfully. Nobody asked us to do this ministry, and no one's going to take it away from us. Blah, 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 blah. I'm like, wow, did I hit a, a hot button unknowingly. But that was a revealer to me that this ministry, as simple as it was, actually meant far too much to them. Way, way too much. And the other difficulty here is Sometimes theologies come around that are attractive to us. I actually know of two people who became very interested in understanding Jews who come to Christ, Messianic Christianity. And they began pursuing it, wanted to go to Messianic congregation, got into all the, the Old Testament practices, and finally said, wait a minute, all of us should be doing this together. You guys, you, you got it wrong in the church. We should be doing these. But no, 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 no. We're not going to do the law all over again. Didn't you read what Peter got in the book of Acts from the Lord doing a download on him? And somehow these people were drawn into this and they thought they had a deeper truth that no one else had until finally they weren't even going to Messianic congregation anymore. They were full Jewish. Full Jewish. That's how deep their deception became because they thought they had a deeper truth. But really, this is a very big concern. And Charles Stanley identifies it by saying this. The best way in the world to deceive believers is to cloak a message in religious language, declare that it conveys some new insight from God. But it's a deception. You see, so we as believers can still be deceived even with things that look good because they have some truth. It's partial truth. And that's where the deception is. Well, how, they can't be so bad because they do this, that, that, that. Be very, very careful. And of course, the greatest deception that the world has ever pervaded on us is to say, you know what? You don't really need Jesus. Or how about this one that came from the world? I'm okay, you're okay. And how about this one? Religion is the opiate of the people. Huge, Mark, Karl Marx wrote that as a huge move of society that was brought about as a result of that. Religion is the opiate of the people. None of it is actually true. All of it's based in deceptions. And the big, greater deception of the world, of course, is to sometimes say, a little bit of religion is okay but you don't want to go overboard. The first thing my mother said to me when I became a Christian was, Bobby, a little bit of religion's okay, but you don't want to go overboard. That's a deception. 
Be good. Just be good. You'll go to heaven. But here's the big undeception. Scripture. There is none good. There's none righteous. Not one. Sorry, folks, before you hear the good news, you got to hear the bad news. And that is, you're not going to make it without the power of Jesus Christ in your life. You're not going to do it. On your own strength, you can't make it. And in our lives, all our lives, we have been enemies of God by rejecting his one and only plan of salvation. Here's another undeception of the world. We're not understanding clearly the height, the breadth, the depth of God's love towards us, his grace, and his mercy towards us. We're deceived into forgetting how much he loves us. For God did so love us as part of the world that he sent his son Jesus to pay the price for our rebellion. Well, what do we have to do? Turn your lives over to Jesus with a humble and a contrite heart. Well, perhaps you may have sensed today by some of the things I'm saying that you have never actually made that decision. I want to pray a prayer over all of us right now. I want everyone to close your eyes. Please bow your heads. And I want you to repeat this prayer after me. So I'll just say the phrase you recited out loud, all of us together. Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for the things I've done wrong. I recognize that I have been deceived. Please forgive me. Thank you for dying for me. Even when I was doing wrong. Thank you that you forgive me. Please give me your spirit. I receive your spirit. I want to be close to you. Be with me forever. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.